TV with my co-host Jeremy Scipio. Going on, everybody. And special guest. <laughs> that was What's awesome. up, dude? Well, I say my you you just looking at me, man. I was waiting for the <laughs> you intro. Give up on the intro? <laughs> Mr. I know. See, I told you I was a fan. Usually I like, go through this long situation, but nah, man, we got Jamie Kennedy, man. It's, it's been a it's been a lot of work invested in this, man. I've had Jay, I've had uh, Jeremy on him. You know what I'm saying? Trying to make he it did. happen. We tried to get me a couple times, and then I was like, I wasn't <laughs> around. But Tuesday night, man, everything got canceled. So here I am. I would have did it anyway, but I just have more time now. Good to meet nah. you, man. Nah, good looking out, dude. This is a this is this is a true pleasure. Uh, you know, this this podcast is kind of I like to wrap everything about around hip hop because that's kind of where I've, I've not not to date myself, but I've just kind of been very real with myself. And uh, if most people can't have a center point of hip hop. They probably haven't been around. Cool music, we'll, we'll just say, yeah, we'll say cool music. But uh, tell me this. When was the first time you heard hip hop? The first time I heard hip hop was, so I'll give you a little background. I grew up in a place called Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. And Upper Darby is right on the verge of West Philadelphia. Okay. So born and raised. Born and raised. So literally <laughs> when I was about, probably fifth or sixth grade, I started going to this playground 
and it was like the nice little playground, and, and they had the good, they had pretty good basketball hoops. So I started just slowly starting to learn about basketball and play. And we had a kid in my school by the name of Sean, but his real name was Lump. And so we, he always, I said, why is your name Lump? He goes, because I always keep my pockets lumpy. And he it was in seventh grade. And he was, we always played basketball. And he like taught me basketball. And he gave me a tape one day. And he, he said, pop this in. And I said, what is it? And I looked at it, it said, run DMC. And it was probably 83, like early 83. And I was like, was this a space cartridge? Like, what is this? Run DMC. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, yo, pop it in. It's going to change your life. And then I did. And then he brought a big ass radio. Like he was like that dude. And then he started putting everything in the fat boys even when he had tapes when they were called the Disco 3, he had Old Cool Herc, who's the OG. Then he had Africa Bambada. I'm talking before, um, you know, I'm talking even before, he had Cool Modi, early Cool Modi. He had just those types, Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow was like big time influence on me. And I love LL and everybody after, but I got in kind of early. Okay. And then we used to go to a place called 69th Street, and 69th Street, you know, uh, was a, a street like a couple blocks away. And it was like where the suburbs and Philly met. And it was a great place because every culture was there, you know, black, white, Korean, Greek, gay, straight, Muslim, Catholic, and but there, there was a couple music stores and they would always just play loud music, but tons of other stores. And I learned a lot about music and I would say the feeling of hip hop through 69th Street. And one time I was there, because Jeremy already brought it up, and there was a rapper in 86 who had his tape and he was on the corner and he was like, yo, this is my new single, Parents of the World Ain't Nothing But Trouble. Will Smith. And he was hustling it hard. Everybody knew Will for like a year and a half before he blew up in Philly. He was a huge Philly legend. Dang. Dang. Well, that was... That's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, that yeah was, so at Philly, I, I always felt that Philly had a really good scene. Yeah, no, we just had somebody... Uh, we, we just had a couple Philly people on it, it's such it a small really world. Is, well, it is. It's like, I don't realize how much, you know, Philly is, kind of has a lot of hip-hop in it in the sense that it's like what hip-hop is. It's gritty. It's bob your head. It is, it's a vibe, you know? I mean, it is a Black thing, you know? You will have to comment on that more than me because I was for me it was started by black people and created by black people but i just want to say in philly everybody enjoyed it 
You know what I mean? So it, it was enjoyed by Greeks. It was enjoyed by little Korean kids. It was enjoyed by everybody. So it really, Philly was a good melting pot of it. Um, and even though New York was always, you know, New York, New York, not like New York pop, you know, and KRS Worm was always talking about the bridge and all this shit, which I love him. <laughs> He's a prophet. I just thought Philly was a little bit overlooked. And I think there's a good scene there. You know, uh, the funny the funny thing about Philly, the musical culture of Philly is so rich. I mean, it's so rich that it's just kind of like, for me, I mean, a lot of people know it for the roots, but if you listen back to like some of that Motown music and the music that was around during those times, they had like Gamble and Huff. They had like all these, these super dope writers and then these super mm -hmm. dope musicians and these super dope session singers and all this kind of stuff. And it is just kind of like, it's amazing because I, and it was funny because w the interview that we had last week um, was with this artist by the name of V and like, he's worked with Jill Scott. He's worked with uh, Jazzy Jeff. He's, you know, all he's missing all these Philly people. And, you know, it kind of just resonated. We don't, we don't think of it and put it all together, but Philly is like, like uh just very rich culturally with, with within the whole the whole music thing like you know just just amazing amazing singers amazing songwriters and just all that kind of stuff all that kind of stuff. It, it it is i got even another one for you so in my neighborhood like i said i grew up right on the edge which was great you know because i got to see a lot of things and there was a kid in my neighborhood and he was always playing loud music and he was older than me, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years or whatever. And he was always jamming out and he had a band and people were like, yo, this kid's got the local band. Uh oh, we lost Jeremy. And, uh, and it was like, he was always like known as like the loud rocking kid. And uh, one day he was like gone and they're like, they're like, oh, I'm like, what happened to Todd? And they go, oh, Todd, he, he's like, he got like a record deal. He's like going to go on tour. He's opening for somebody. And I think it was like maybe Cheap Chick or something. Um, and that was a guy named Todd Rundgren. So, you know, Todd <laughs> you Rundgren. Hello, cool, Jay. <laughs> you know, Todd, no, Todd Rundgren grew up right around the corner from me. And he was like a local, wow. like, musician. And then that's another example of what you're saying. Yeah. So were you, because um, I know you and uh, Will Smith end up working together. Did he remember you from when he handed you the mixtape or like how did that? No. <laughs> yeah, what's up, dude? Remember me in front of Leandro's Pizza? I was bobbing my head. <laughs> oh, he was hustling. I mean, my he was out there way before everybody. And big smile. Jazzy Jeff, too. Jazzy Jeff always had that rep of like really popping off. Because if you, his beats still are dope. So it's like he always was like, you know, known as like the party DJ around the Philly area. Jazzy Jeff, like if he went to like an event, Jazzy Jeff was DJing. So, no, he did not remember. But um, he knew <laughs> I was from Philly, but he was he he was real cool. But I actually know his his like best friend kind of guy who's been in his life for a while. I think we used to work with him. I'm not sure. Charlie Mack. I don't okay. know if you know Charlie Mack, but Charlie oh. Mack is kind of. Knows everybody in Hollywood. He's the mayor of Hollywood. But Charlie Mack was like, you know, I still talk to him. And he he was like, oh, yeah, he, he was like, what's up, Philly? But uh, no, Will was, he was, he's been busy. But we, we did get to play some basketball with everybody. That was nice. Could he hoop? 
Yeah, dude, he could run, man. He could run. <laughs> he could run, and it's like he wants the ball, pass it. That's what, get, get, you know what I mean. Get, you can't hold out in the pass to Will. And you, okay, take everybody. Here you go. Take that three. <laughs> so tell me this: At what age did you realize that you you could make people laugh? Um, you know, I I would say. Probably single digits, probably like eight or nine. Like, like I said, I grew up in Philly, and Philly is its own thing. Where it's different than New York, but New York is more like on the stoop, you know, and 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 you have to like survive on the stoop, and, and people are always cutting up and doing jokes, and they see everything. And I think Philly has some of that. But it's different, and I think that it still has that same thing where it's like you're either gonna fight or you're either gonna be funny, right? You have to disarm the situation. I wasn't really a fighter; like I was like more crazy, but I wasn't like I really like I enjoy my face, you know. I really enjoy my arms and legs, and like I wasn't trying to get beat up, like. And I knew like that was our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was like two types of people: guys who were like will beat ass and other people that will just be funny as shit and antagonize two other people and watch them beat ass and to stay over here to be safe. You know what I mean? So probably early, you know, like nine, eight or nine. And I would, you know, it worked in school. It worked in church. It worked around my mom and her friends. So I was able to diffuse a lot of stuff or just dangle this over here, you know, be funny to get out of that. You know what I mean? Right For Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy understands it too. I said, but it just, I realized once like I made girls laugh, I was like, oh, okay, this might be something. You know what I mean? In junior high school, who do you think the hardest rapper was? In junior, what, my junior high? Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I mean, like, dude, I loved LL. I was LL all day, all night. I think LL is, I think he's really highly rated among rappers, but I don't think the public, the public does know him and love him, but they see the guy on NCIS. But I mean, people like me know and know him, but like maybe the younger generation don't realize exactly how hard and dope he he is and was. Uh, So I was kind of raised on LL and and then that kind of introduced me to the whole Def Jam catalog, but like, I was in all types of stuff like Herbie Hancock. Like I said, Africa Bambana was just like had so much good beats and stuff. And like, like the Fat Boys were awesome. And obviously, this um, Rakim, Rakim was really, really, just really good. He made you feel cool. Yeah, that's that's, that's what I want to say. Yeah, it's like when I think it was like I would go to parties and I just noticed that when hip hop was on, as opposed to like rock music, which I don't, I like rock music too. I like all types of music, but hip hop was the one that kind of made you feel just cooler. You know what I mean? <laughs> Obviously. Obviously you know that. I got a funny story. Uh, I was uh, talking to Mick Jones from The Clash. And uh, wow. we were in, uh, we were in Syria. It was before everything got funky, but it was like right 
maybe like a year or two before things got funky. And we would talk at night before, uh, like before both of us crashed out, we would just, you know, we, we had a common, we had a common denominator <laughs> that we used to like to hang out and just have a conversation in the evening after, after a meal or whatnot. So we got together and we were talking and he told me this incredible story about how, um, Russell Simmons really helped the clash. Like, like he understood their music and like, he basically helped break them in the United States. And he said that, uh, he's like, yeah. And I remember being on tour and it was the sweetest guy. He was like really cool. And he, you know, he had manners and he, you know, he was all on top of the hip hop thing. And his name was Todd. <laughs> I'm like, LL Cool J. And he was like, yeah. And I was just like, dang. He's like, yeah, man, if you, if you ever see Todd, tell him I said, hello, man. They were like the sweetest guys. And I was like, dang. So he said his first U.S. tour was uh, Run DMC, I want to say LL Cool J. It might have been the Beastie Boys, but it was the Clash. And so that was like their first tour in the United States. And it, and it, you know, it made a lot of sense because the Clash, even though they were punk, like you listen to Radio Clash, that's some straight hip hop, you know, b boying, you know, type of music. But you know, mm -hmm. since you mentioned Todd, <laughs> wow, that's crazy, man. But I'm not surprised as Russell Simmons is a you know music aficionado. Also, Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin was early, early Def Jam, Def American. That was all. I mean, you know, as you can see, how he goes from many styles, you know. But he was a big proponent of it. It still is, obviously. So where did you go to high school? Uh, I went to a high school called Bonner, Monsignor Bonner. And it was, you know, in, uh, you know, right outside. It was in a place called Drexel Hill. And, uh, yeah, it was a Catholic all-boys high school. Any famous so, actors? Uh, Actually. Musicians? Um. Yeah, I mean, like, there's this, like, walk of fame, and I'm, like, really happy that I got on it. But, like, there's other people that have that have come out of that school. A guy named John Capoletti. Do you ever remember a movie back in the day called Something for Joey about the Penn State running back? And his, and his brother, he won a game for his dying brother. It's a beautiful story. Uh, he went there. Like I said, this guy, Todd Rundgren, who's a rock star, went to the competing school, Upper Darby. Uh, Tina Fey went to Upper Darby, I believe. Sherry O'Terry went to the neighboring school, Prenby. Um, a few, definitely some people came out of there for sure. But my neighborhood has more people. Who's come up out of your neighborhood? Um, I, Ed McMahon, they said before I was there, oh. Ed McMahon. Um, also, uh, Kevin Bacon's a little farther. I think he was from Villanova. He's from there. Um, then there's more newer people. I have to. Bradley Cooper is not from my neighborhood, but I think he's from. Uh, he's uh, from another part of Philly, but it's. Uh, oh, I forget. It. I'm having brain fog. But he's he's from there. There's a lot of people that have come out of Philly. So when was the first time you did stand up? Oh, May nineteen. 89 I was I was 19 years old and uh I did it 
down at a place in the valley called the Beverly Garland Hotel. Still there. They had an open mic night, and I read about it in a thing called the Drama Log. And I was like, had all this energy, and I didn't understand how to break in the business and all that. And just enough people told me I got to try stand up. You got to try stand up. I was like, how do you even go about doing that? So I, used to, I signed up on an open mic and I signed up on the open mic and it was a contest. So it was like poets, singers, comics, dancers. And uh, I did it. And it's right off of Lancashire and I won second prize. And second oh. prize was was a, was, a, was a bottle of like, you know, uh, Costco champagne, but I was only 19, so they couldn't give it to me. So they gave me a bottle of Martinelli's sparkling. <laughs> and I was like, I got second. <laughs> you never saw anybody more happy to get second. I'm like, second? Really? Like, <laughs> I did like six minutes, which isn't easy to do. It's hard to do six minutes now sometimes. And uh, <laughs> I just a bunch of shit I wrote. And like, I don't know, I somehow made it funny. When it wasn't funny, I would just make something about it to make it like was commenting on how it wasn't funny or whatever. And, and then it was born. And then, so like the next week I was signed up for another open mic at a Radisson. And um, I proceeded to eat the biggest shit you ever saw. Like to the point where like hotel people were checking out. I mean, the lobby, I cleared the lobby out. Like, it was <laughs> terrible. Yeah. And I was like, I got second place. Over here at the valley. I don't know. And <laughs> then I waited a week. I quit. And the third week, I signed up again at a Tony Roma's. And I ate another shit. And I'm like, what the f <laughs> I got second place. So, and then I, then I took off two weeks. So, I don't know how people do it. But my mine was very spotty for the first year and a half. Up a little up a little and then I went back to some coffee house like five months later and I eked out just a little bit of laughs somebody was encouraging and they're like this is a grind this is how you do it you have to build off a laugh you know you have to just a teeniest laugh and and that's how I started but I always tell people that I had the I had nothing and I had you have to be two things to be successful I believe as a comedian you have to be you have to have um, a, a tremendous amount of ego and a tremendous amount of delusion. And like you need, when you walk in the party, if there's 30 people there, you, they need to listen to you because you have something to say. That is a tremendous amount of ego. And you believe that you're gonna say shit that nobody in this room can say and you're gonna get all everyone's attention. And comedians do. But you have to have a tremendous amount of delusion that you think that you can just do that and keep doing it. You know what I mean? You're like you're going up at coffee shops, 20 people sign up. You're going on at 1.30 a.m. to, a, a, you know, a half a, you know, a stripper and a, you know, possibly pill head and a half a, eating a half a burnout scone. You know what I mean? You're doing that for years. And you're like, this is going to lead to success. I mean, you're trying to make the, the barista laugh in the back, you know, like it's nuts. 
But all you need is that laugh, that one laugh, and that would get me through a while because I knew it was hard to do. And it literally was money. Like it was like, you know, you have nothing, you have a laugh. And you and even see when you see young comics laugh at you when you're a young comic, you're like, okay, I'm doing it right. That's all. But it's, but it's delusional. It's delusional. So I've I seen the Dead Poet Society with uh, Robin Williams was uh, one of your first movies. But I wasn't sure if it was the actual first. Was that like your first film? Yeah, I did that video about it. So it's it was really, that's what got me into the whole thing. It was like I had these feelings that I was going to be in the entertainment business. I, listen, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. Like I try to break it down for people like, I don't understand if people are like, I know I'm going to do this. You don't really do it. Like, if you talk to good rappers, like, they were dudes probably just spitting rhymes around their house, and then they compelled to write something, and then they were, like, rapping on the corner, and then eventually they would go to, like, ciphers and stuff. But, like, you have to find what it is you do, right? So, like, I wanted mm -hmm. to be, like, an actor slash comedian, but I, I didn't know how to do it or if you could really do it. And then I, well, that, that video you, people can watch on my YouTube channel, but basically how I kind of got this break and I was, I became an extra in the movie Dead Poets Society. And that was the first like set, anything I was ever on in Hollywood ever, like anything remotely. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a, a light stand was. I didn't know what a cinematographer, I didn't know any of that. And I was on that set and I was like, Literally, it's like soon as I was there, it was like this golden light just bathed me. And I was like, I found what I'm supposed to do. It was like divine intervention. And then it, ever since then, I've never looked back. Yeah, mine was uh, the NWA movie. Uh, the back of my head was in the film. And uh, that divine intervention, I didn't feel any of that. I felt. Uh... <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> I felt like uh, one of the ends in the NWA. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> just, well, what, that wasn't back. your first, was it, what was your, did, what was your first thing that you did that you felt like, oh my God, this is like, was that your first thing or that wasn't your first set? I mean, that was before the nah. first set before anything. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, nah, I mean, if I, I don't know. Uh, first thing that, what did you say that felt like what? Like that you were meant to do this. Um, I think uh, actually being on the road with um, Russell Peters and uh, getting that check, that was just like, because, you know, the, the amount of work output compared to the money amount, I was just like, yeah, can't nobody tell me, uh, <laughs> tell me shit no more. That was like, the first yeah, but the was fact like, that, that you were on the road with Russell, how, that's, you were on the road with one of the biggest comedians in the world. That's when you felt it. You didn't, I mean, of course you're going to feel it then, but you didn't feel it like on your first open mic when you <laughs> but got no, that like was a early, laugh. That was early on. I started wow. comedy in 2010. That was 2011. Dude, you got in <laughs> so, early. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's that was crazy. financial intervention. <laughs> Jamie's like, you got paid? <laughs> you got, you yeah, got I know. I mean, I was at the Tony Roma, dude. <laughs> I mean, I, I had I had a, a bunch of 
crap that happened before, but that was just one of the situations where it was just like, you know, I used to take a lot of advice. And then after that, I was just like, I don't need advice on my actual stand-up. You know what I mean? Like, I take yeah. advice from other areas, you know, but like, just like being me is what got me here. I didn't have to like, you know, kiss butt or do whatever. It was just, I just was doing me and, you know, it happened. So I was just like, I am need to find out who I am more and, you know, develop more. But I'll, like I said, I've never, after, honest, I ain't gonna lie. After I got that check, I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> nice. Meaning that you were making good money and you knew you were on the right path. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, just the path. Like, I mean, m money doesn't define, obviously, you know, why I do stand up at all. Cause I, I'm damn sure not making that now. But uh, <laughs> it's just, you know, it just let me know, like, like I said, just if there was any maybes, that killed all the maybes. Like, I knew I was where I was supposed to be. Wow. So, so tell me this, uh, Jamie. Um, when you did the first read before you got hired to do um, Malibu's Most Wanted, what were your, what, you reading that script or reading over the script? What were the first thoughts that were coming to your mind that came to your um, mind as you looked at the character that you, you were going to portray? Well, you know, I wrote that, right? Wow. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> that, so that, I mean, that changes a little bit, but. I did not know I, that you wrote, I did not know that you wrote. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the Big movie. fan. Big fan. <laughs> wow um no but i'll give you this story no i'll give you this it's a good question though i'm only busting with you bro no no um <laughs> so the whole thing let's go back to what we were talking about because like i grew up in philly and i am me and like yeah, like I can do this and like get in, like, yeah, what's up? I'm gonna spit at this shorty and all that shit. You know what I mean? Saying, you know what I'm saying? Like, I grew up like that, but I didn't, <laughs> but I didn't talk like that. And like, dudes in my neighborhood, like, like little Jewish kids or little Irish kids were like, hey, man, did you get that new B side? Like, we weren't like, yeah, what's up? But like, we could do that, right? And so, Malibu's was born out of literally. When I came to LA, I saw these kids that were like repping hard, but like, yeah, like they literally were like, yeah, man, I don't wanna see you down here at the Glendale Galleria. You know what I'm saying? This is all Galleria. <laughs> like, like, and I'm like, Hi, why are you like, you know, you know the term, why are you fronting? Like, literally, like, <laughs> dude, they were like uh -huh. literally fronting. And, and that's how. The, the the character was born so i was doing stand-up and stand-up is the only thing that you can control which you can't even control but at least if you can get on a stage you can control your thing and so for me stand-up for a long time was working out characters and i just was so moved by these guys that I would see in LA, oh, I felt like never even been out of Century City, let alone Compton or Brooklyn or Queens or North Philly or the A. I was like, what are we, what, this is hilarious. So I thought <laughs> basically that's how the character was born and I would do it 
in my act and it became the cornerstone of my act and then people loved it and then I got to do it on NBC late night uh they used to have a stand-up showcase and then I did it a couple times and it was like I'm like this is people were like yo this is a good character and then long story boring I met Nick Swartzen and Nick Swartzen's like dude I think you know how you want to make that a movie I told him and he was like I think I got like you know an idea so he wrote five pages in like a day and they were just hilarious and I was like dude keep writing and this that was just the beginning he would like watch me on stage and write some notes I would improvise boom and that's how the script was born and then the you know the character went from that the Jamie Kenny experiment and, okay and so you, so that's how it is okay so you got together with him and you guys wrote it but okay you made it like okay i get it but but it was it no was but i want i want to say one more thing that but i was at that time going out for like different characters like that there was a it was a great usc movie there was like a usc grad movie and it was really hardcore like kid like want to be like hip-hop head and i didn't get it but i had a really good audition and i just knew i had this character in me there was also something called uh zebra head that i did not go out for but mike rapaport did and mike was kind of the og of that and then there was something called white white boys and a kid by the name of danny hawk was really had a hip-hop thing going on if you look at white boys and then there was Can't Hardly Wait. And I went in for that. And there's a character that's kind of has that feeling to him. And I didn't get that. So I had all of these things and it was percolating. But at some point I was like, I just, it's not going to happen that way. I got to create it my own. And I had it. And that's, that's why I created the thing because I knew I had to do it myself. You know what? Which I think is the, I was going to say, I think that's the best way. I think, uh, Whenever I like research any like major comedian, I feel like at some point they kind of took their career into their own hands. And I also like how you said it was like the cornerstone of your act and how you made it. Like that's like like the the taking a bit something so small, which is idea, and expanding it to a full feature length movie is like that's like the the dream to have for any idea, any small idea you have. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and and it showed me that. You can do that. I mean, just a kernel of an idea and it can grow as it does. As long as people are laughing and responding, just give them more of it if you enjoy it. And, And I did that for a while. And then when I started having other stuff that Hollywood wouldn't understand and, you know, hard to get it made, then, then like, you know, you become like actor for hire, shit like that. Um, and that doesn't excite me as much, unless they're amazing, amazing, you know, filmmakers and projects. But now I'm getting to the point back again, especially with all this happening. I'm just not, I'm totally into doing my own thing 100%. And like, if I'm going to collaborate. We talked about that uh, not too long ago. You said you was writing and working some stuff. Yeah, I'm all about this. What we're doing right now, I'm all about YouTube. I'm all about putting my voice out there, you know? And, and I'll, I, if I want to do something, it has to come from me. And if I collaborate, then I got to get my voice out there. And then 
you know, it has to be a good unison. I can't have somebody try to tell me my voice. I just can't. Mm -hmm. uh, who is Marty Powers? <laughs> That's a whole other story. Um, so, all right, so I was working, like, you know, I was, I'm not like Jeremy. I didn't make it in a year. Jeez. Oh, stop so I'm it. doing all of these. <laughs> I'm doing every shitty gig. Like, it, it took me about five years to get on. I mean, more like seven to get on, get on. But five years of, like, really just every other day. Not Like, I would go to Ralph's three times a day because I would buy a meal. And they, I was like, they were like, why do you, why do you just buy it all at once? And I'm like, I don't know if I got to use this money for something else. So I'm going to just buy this bagel right now. And I'm going to keep this other $2 and this cheese. Like I would literally go in and buy meal per meal. So, and I did that on and off for like five years. And uh, I had tons of jobs. So one of the jobs I was doing was I was telemarketing which is a good job for a comic. Everybody hates them, but you, it's a good job. And so right down here by the uh, Seven Vale Strip Club in La Brea, there was a telemarketing room. And one of my friends who was a comic, opened my comic with me, he was like, he got a new Mustang. It was like $900 for, a, not a new, but a, a, a used car, but it was a Mustang. I'm like, how'd you do that? He's like, dude, I'm telemarketing. Come to this address tomorrow. Oh. Oh, okay. Dang. Yeah, I lost her. I must have lost her. I must have lost her. No, you good? He's still there. Okay. okay. All right, go ahead. So every, every person in the world was just dialing for dollars. I mean, strippers, you know, low red porn stars, rockers, like 80s hair, you know, meth heads, you know, old, old you know, single moms, a couple of old ladies. Um, it was my buddy Barry, who was a comic. And our other buddy Ski, who was a, was like another comic, but he was an actor, and we would all, they taught me the game. So basically, I had to go, and you call, and you ask people the copy number on their their photocopier, and then from that, you give that number to the salesman, and he sells them a better toner. You know, what toner is toner is the ink for the copy machine and so every number i got 75 cents and that's a lot of money so if i could get 100 numbers in a day that's 75 bucks I mean, that's good money now man so i would do that for like six hours a day like and i would use different voices i call over all over america and uh long story short is there was a character i was doing in my act marty power and he was like it's hard to do it i have to like really get into it but he was I was basically a fake agent I made up. And um, <laughs> I started basically calling people in Hollywood, club bookers, agencies, and I faked 
this character to basically get into rooms. And that Marty Power was born out of my telemarketing because in telemarketing, you have to treat it like a product, take three no's and hang up. There's all these rules. And so I would call agencies like that, but no one's going to listen to me. Believe it or not, before social media, people watching, you didn't talk about yourself. You actually just did your work <laughs> and let people talk about you. You didn't go, oh, check me out. Look at me. You actually just well, actually had to be good. And if you talked about yourself, people <laughs> would be like, who the fuck are you? And uh, <laughs> so that's what I did. I had to make up a character and then I called people. And that's how I started getting early, early Eddie, meetings. I heard Eddie Griffin. I heard Eddie Griffin did the same thing. I don't know uh, who else did, but I, I I know that was actually a good strategy, but I don't know how anybody who went all in like you, like to actually like made a whole separate persona. I heard like to get like on a stage or two, but that's pretty dope. Well, you have to because nobody wants you. And it's like the first thing you got to do is back in the day. I mean, you have to have something called tape, you know? And tape was like the biggest thing. So like the first thing is you got to get into a, you got to get a set film at a shitty club or a shitty room. And it has to be funny enough to show the booker of a real room to let you get five minutes. And then from there, you got to kill and get better tape. And then you have to decide what tape is good enough to send out to casting people to go, well, I'm at the improv. This is my tape. And then from there, you hopefully get cast in something where you get a non-union commercial and that's more tape. So it's like these levels to it of basically being co-signed, if you will. And, uh, you know, there's very few people in Hollywood that go, oh, you got talent, you're interesting. I'm going to bet on you. It's more like, how many people like you? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I must like you now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Man, I'm a, I'm a huger fan, man. The story, your story is great. Like, man, I, you know, I was, I was, uh, you had me at Fetterline and, uh, Malibu's most wanted, man. <laughs> the process though, the process, amazing. Um, tell me this, at what point did you realize that Malibu's most wanted was, was, and, and I'll call it this because, you know, I never knew all the connections. Like I, 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 me liking your character, uh, uh, Fetterline and Malibu, like I never knew that those were connected until recently. Like I, I appreciated them both on separate, separate planes. When did someone say something to you for the first time and you said, man, maybe Malibu's most wanted was a cult film? Because it's definitely a cult film of that time and that generation with the satire and the whole thing. Um, at what point did you realize that you had something? It's a good question. Um, I definitely knew I had something when I was in the in the clubs, right? And then I did like a stand-up shows. Remember Late Friday? Do you remember Late Friday? That was that was like one of the early stand-up shows would come on Friday nights, and I did stand-up on that, and it did really well. And then when I got my show. It did really well, the character on the Jamie Kenny experiment. So then we sold the movie, we got the movie made. And when I was making the movie, you know, 
I was different people would laugh at stuff, you know, like Regina would laugh. And the movie had so many good people in it, you know, like um that was just so funny. But like Anthony Anderson would laugh and I would laugh at them too, you know, or Terry Crews never laughed. He was always in character. He was so funny, man. <laughs> but I was like, he has to have more lines. Like he was and I saw him in training. I saw him in training day, and I'm like, we gotta get this guy. Like, I, he just there was something about him, and he, and it was so cool that he did it. And and but like, I knew on the set, like Tate Diggs, Tate Diggs is so funny. He's so funny, like truly, <laughs> truly, a just a really, really hilarious like as funny as anyone you'll ever meet. I'm, you know, he doesn't do comedy, but he could, he is just so <laughs> subtle and, you know, he would laugh and, um, Damien Dante was always just bringing it, you know? And I think that, like there was all these moments, but I think this is, this is, this will be, the moment I think, I think what really when I knew it was I went to the premiere, it was man's Chinese and a lot of the Waynes came mm-hmm. and in the background, in the back, I just, they were like rose back and I just heard them dying laughing. I don't know which Waynes <laughs> it was, but I just heard a bunch <laughs> of laughs and I knew that section was the Waynes and I was like, <laughs> It's on. Like, if they laugh, it's on. Because, like, you know, those are, like, my heroes, you know? That's what I grew up on. And then the work with, you know, Damien Dante, he's part of that lineage, you know? And and then once I went to screenings, I knew. And then here's how I really knew. So it's, like, different processes. But I would say – I would say when the Boston Globe gave it a weird review – but some like paper in Baltimore, like a more like hip hop paper gave it a glowing review. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that's what it is. It's really, the, people really who know it, know it. It's like Malibu's Most Wanted was kind of made, it was made for everybody, but it was really made as a love letter mm-hmm. for hip hop. And it was really made, like black people love the movie more than anyone. Like. You know, I I say this all the time. Like, I can't go to certain places in, like, you know, the hood because I'm, like, Leo. And I know you're going to laugh at that. But, like, I get love. Like, 35-year-old black women, it's on. I mean, thank you. I love you. I love you, women. Like, they just love me. And they just quote me. And so I knew when I – that was basically embraced by the black community. And they got the joke. And the joke is, you know, there's a lot of jokes in it, but the real joke is they love our rhythm, but I, they hate our blues. You know what I mean? Hey, I love that. So, um, go ahead. Well, no, go I just ahead. say you can't make a point. There's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of subversive points in Malibu's, but you can't. You, it's a way to do it. The only way you can really make points in this world is through comedy. When you're disarming somebody, Jeremy, you know this. You get yeah. the deepest shit ever as someone's laughing. You know, that's what Chappelle does. 
laugh, 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 bam! Then I hit you with this profit statement. And you're like, ooh. And, you, and it'll make you laugh again, warm you up, bam! You know, that's how you got to do it. And oddly enough, they like, I feel like, uh, you know, in, um, in modern day society, um, they trust comedians more than politicians and religious religious figures. You know what I mean? So they kind of, we, we kind of have their, their trust in a weird way. And uh, we're supposed to be like entertainers. Like we're, we're like the lowest of the bar of, you know, societal respect, but we have all their respect because I guess we just, our art form is the last form of honesty, I guess, you know. I, I agree with that. I, I, I agree with that. And it's, it's hurtful that you say that and it's not untrue, but it's not, I think it's changing, but it's, it is, there is a, there is a disrespect for comedians, but a huge respect for comedy. And I will say, yeah. because people just think it's easy and they're laughing and it's like, oh, he, I'm funny at the office, and I'm funny at my picnic. And it's like, no, man, like you know, just because you know everyone's got an asshole doesn't mean they can be a proctologist. So <laughs> it's like, it's it's, but for some reason the barrier to entry to comedy is very low, but it doesn't mean it's easy to do. And I do think that we are looked upon much more revering now which is nice i think netflix and podcasts and all of this type of stuff has really helped it because people mm -hmm. see the comedian's mind comedian you know comedy is one of the seven forms of intelligence and mm -hmm. and i think people forget that and it's not easy to size up a room quickly make them laugh disarm them and make a point and do it all in three minutes so i think the respect is getting much more but i agree with you so what was what was the process of uh, getting your uh, your show, the Jamie Kennedy Experiment? Uh, real quick before you answer that question, because I feel like the the type of character work that you did, um, you know, only a few people got appreciated to the you know to do what you did like on on television. Well, on television in general, you had Martin, uh, but then you also had like uh, Eddie with Nutty Professor. You know, it just like it's sparingly. So to get that much freedom to do your, you know, doing your own show. Like, how was that? It was incredible. Uh, I mean, that's why I wanted to do it. I, I, I auditioned for SNL, was flown to New York, did the whole thing and um, didn't get it. And I was really, 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 really bummed out, you know? And then I didn't know what I was gonna do. And then, you know, started slowly getting commercials and I started getting acting work and that was really encouraging but in the meantime I was always doing my stand-up and everything and I started having these characters and once I got enough clout I was like okay I'm gonna try to make my own thing and you know it was a perfect place for me the WB because they were young and they gave young people shows you know they had the Wayne's brother show and they had Dawson's Creek and they were like into the youth oriented things. And so it was a lot of freedom. And that's why I did it. I did it to show people that I could like really be an actor and make people believe these characters. And that's why I did it. People were like, wow, it's just a funny little prank show. But those people who got it, got it and really loved it. And that's why it kind of subversively came up. But um it was amazing, man. And, and it, that was like one of those things that people at first thought it was really funny and escape, but then they started seeing how 
we were subverting things, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'd say the format was really unique. I can't think of any show that had the same format because, uh, you know, of course you had like Candy Camera, but then also it would cut back to more of like a talk show style thing, you know, where you were like a part of the audience, you know? I mean, I don't, I still can't think of a show. Is there a show that that format was based off of or or that was just no, your we, own part of your own video as well? We, we created it, me and the other three creators. And we basically just said, look, I want to do these cam these characters. I love SNL. I want to do something that is a, 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 a real character that people believe in a real circumstance, but it's a joke. It's like candy camera. And then we wanted to test it and see how far we could push people. That's when like the experiment came of like, what, what, you know, what will people, how far can we bend their morals, if you will? And then we had the studio audience. So we play it back and watch it and then interview them. They'd be like, what were we thinking in that moment? You know, so it had multiple things. I mean, it was really freeing that way to do it. And we would shoot all during the week for like two weeks and prosthetics and all that. And then Friday night, we'd have a big taping, a big party. And um, it was great. People would watch the playback. All the laughs are real. Those are real people laughing. And then we've done. And then we go out and have a big steak, smoke a cigar. <laughs> And just like, yeah, we're doing it. It was awesome. And uh, I do a show now called Funny You Should Ask. It's a game show. It's on CBS from two to three. It's Byron Allen's show. And I equate that like that. Like the vibe that we have on that show is so fun. We do a joke. The audience is really, they're just there, just dying laughing. And at the end of the day, we all hang out. And it's just a good vibe. It's nice to just make people laugh and hear them laugh you know what i mean and it's always a good you feel like oh you like a little victory you know mm -hmm. so would you consider yourself an actor that is a comic or would you consider yourself a comedic actor dude that's such a good question that's such a good question there's a lot of like uh what's the word oh purists and stuff that would that would really want this answer. Um, <laughs> I truly am a true Gemini in the sense that I have multiple interests and I, I hate the fact that people pigeonhole you, but you know, if you look at it, you have to go back to the, again, the black community to show the examples of success. So we'll start with Sammy Davis Jr., who could pretty much do anything, right? Um, and he wasn't really pigeonholed. Like, he was an actor and a dancer and a singer and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I think Jamie Foxx kind of really paved the way. Man. Hugely, I mean, can do any impression, any character, can sing, can act. He can do anything. Play the piano. Play oh yeah, amazing playing the piano, amazing instrumentalist, um, musician, um, and then I think Donald Glover took what he did and just extended mm. it. Uh -huh. And it's it's so it's, so if you look at that, like I wouldn't know how to categorize Donald Glover. I would think he's a writer, an actor, yeah. a comedian, a rapper, a singer, just like with Jamie Foxx. <laughs> I would consider 
I would I would consider these guys artists and entertainers, and and I think that I personally am an entertainer. But at the end of the day, can I go into a room with hardcore standups and hold my own? Yes. Have I done gritty clubs and and come up that way? Yes. Have I also been on movie sets with major movies, twenty million dollar movie stars, and done scenes? Yes. So it's hard. But I mean, technically, I started as a comedian, but not really because I started as an extra. So I don't know, dude. I'm split. But <laughs> I do put the time into the craft. I do go to the little rooms, and Jeremy will tell you. And I play his room with eight people. And I had a great set and worked it. So I know I have to keep my respect and get my respect. And people will respect you more if you do that. And, and personally, I have to do it to keep up. You know what I mean? You can't, I don't care how many specials you have. You've got to go into the ha-ha at midnight and make 10 people laugh. <laughs> so I don't know what the answer yeah, that uh, is, but those are good examples, right? Yeah. What, um, I would say what film, what was your favorite film you worked on and uh, also your favorite co-star? Dude, come on. That's like picking your favorite baby. Come on, I'll give you a couple. How about I give you a couple? Um, I think almost my funnest experience, like people think Malibu's was so good and it was, but it was a lot of pressure because I had so many hats I was wearing and I needed to, I had to like do a lot. So it was fun to do. I just remember the one scene like kind of summed it up like <laughs> Terry Crews. Terry Crews, I think, at some point was picking me up during our gun battle. And he just kept picking me up over and over, picking me up, picking me up. And I was like, I was like, hey, Terry, can you pick me up just a little less? He goes, yeah, my bad. And I just felt like this was the movie. <laughs> like, everybody's laughing, but, like, that kind of sums it up right there. Like, it's funny as shit. <laughs> like, it was painful at times because of all the stresses going on because of the writing and the acting. But that was great. Um i say my funnest movie, low stress, was probably Boiler Room. Boiler Room was a really good movie. And it was it came out in the early 2000s. And it was just, you know, early Vin Diesel, Scotty Kahn, uh, Nikki Cat. Yeah, a lot. Uh, just a lot of great actors. Giovanni Ribisi. Tom Everett Scott, Nia Long. And we were all just in New York for pretty much two months, man. Just running it. Like, mad per diem. Like, we didn't get paid a lot of money, but we got paid great money. But it wasn't like, you know, I mean, it was, it's great money, but like, it was a lower budget, cool movie. And the director, Ben Younger, is amazing. He wrote it, he directed it. And he was like, look, man, you know, this is a lower budget movie, but we're going to make it as, as comfortable as we can. And he gave us the, he wrote this amazing script and then gave us the freedom to just try things on set. And he was very, very in the moment. And then he knew what he wanted when he got it, bam. And uh, he knew. And then at night, all of us, including him, would go out. We would go out big meals in the city. We would go to clubs. We would go 
to all these places. It was bomb, you know what I mean? And it was before <laughs> social media. So that was just fun. It was like, we were acting like, you know, we were acting like ballers in the movie and at night we kind of went out and did it. So that was great. <laughs> Nah, that's dope. So now, now, now I can fan out again. So man, <laughs> man, for real, for real, I'm learning more. But I, I like because it's funny because we've had other episodes where we'd have like hip hop people or whatever, and Jeremy knows a lot about hip hop. Like he, he, he's, he definitely impresses me when he comes up and he, he's knowledgeable about certain things. And um, I've had a couple people on that have kind of they've opened him up to a few things and I feel like you really opened me up. Like I thought I was a fan, but actually I was a fan of several of your works, but I only, for whatever reason, I just, the two of them are the ones that kind of like stuck out. So I got to bring up Mr. Fetterline, man. So you, you, you play the voice of, uh, is it Kevin Fetterline? Is, 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 or it's Fetterline on, on the Cleveland show. Yeah. So I plug it in before I die. Go ahead. Oh, no problem. And so <laughs> did someone write Fetterline or did they give you the artistic freedom to kind of freestyle that, that character? Um. So they were doing, uh, they were doing Family Guy. And, you know, I auditioned for Family Guy and I was always a huge fan. And, you know, nothing really was like right for me, but, you know, Seth has always been really, really cool to me. Hmm. And he's always kept me in mind for stuff. And Mike Henry was getting his own show and it was the Cleveland show, the Cleveland character. And he, Mike Henry was, is just hilarious, man. He's, he's, he's such a good writer and he could do any voice. And he was also on the circuit back in the day that he brought up recently. I did a show with him and he was like, he's like, remember on the open mic circuit? So he was out there. Um, so I got, I auditioned for the Cleveland show as one of the four main guys and I thought I was going to get it and I came down to the wire and then I just didn't get it and I was like oh god and then Mike like talked to my agent he's like listen I don't you know he didn't get this but I'm writing this other character I don't know if he wrote it or he already had the idea and he's like his name is Federline obviously he was inspired by Kevin Federline and and um, I was like, I was like, yeah, I would love it. He was like, you want to do that? I think it will come in and out of episodes. So then, boom, I, I wasn't a regular, but I signed a deal to be a recurring. And um, I was the girl, I was, my girlfriend was Regan Gomez. And she played Roberta. And we had our first table read. And it was just on. Like, you know, the, the show worked. Everybody got a lot of laughs. Federline came in, got some laughs. So it was great. And then doing a cartoon is one of the is one of the greatest things you can ever do, especially when you work with those guys, because they're just 
they just got it dialed in and they're masters at it. So, you know, you can show up in your PJs, you go in the booth and um, boom, you knock it out. So all of the stuff that you like was written. Oh, wow. We wrote all that. But I mean, they would let me improv a little bit, but I really didn't need to because it's them, dude. They're so good. They they write it all. They got killer writers, man. But that's where I met. There's a lot of hip hop over there because that's where I met Kanye. And so I did a Kanye episode. And then I did Will I Am. I did an episode with him. And then someone else, I think. But yeah, they, they did a couple episodes. Kanye was, I think, I think well, I forget his character's name, but him and Federline used to rap together. Kenny, Kenny West. <laughs> yeah, Kenny, Kenny West. Kenny, that's right. Yourself. That's right. <laughs> oh, Kenny West. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Federline was fun, man. And they were, they, they were awesome, man. These guys, I love them. I love them. I, I would do anything for with them, you know, for them. I, they're great parties. People love the show. I was I was sad when the show ended, but you know. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm a, I'm a definite fan. I would say uh, between the Boondocks, uh, between the Boondocks and uh, the Cleveland show. Every night before I go to sleep, I'm gonna watch one of them, dude, just to get my. <laughs> Okay, so let me let me ask you this right now. Yeah. So you know that Mike Henry gave up Cleveland. I do, I do, and that was dope. So how do you how do you feel about that, and how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the giving up, and how do you feel okay. about so, that he did it? Okay, so I feel that at the time that he gave up, like after the Mike, I think it was after the Mike Brown situation or whatever, I felt it was very noble of him to give it up. But on the flip side of it, I was like, this guy was so talented. And I don't, I didn't think, I I never felt from his characters that he was like disparaging black people or I I thought he was just a funny, he like, he just played a funny character. Like I, I didn't, I didn't think about it like that. Now, me being a nah, man, he racist. <laughs> nah, <laughs> don't even say that, bro. Don't nah, say he, that. He, I know he's a good dude. I've seen, I've seen stuff on him on YouTube yeah. before, before he quit the show and everything. Great guy. I watched. You know, when when I see when when, when I gravitate towards a character, a musician, or whatever, and I do a little bit of research on him, um. I, I kind of try to connect. I feel like if I give somebody a lot of my time, like my personal time, which Boondocks and Cleveland show is my person. That's not me working or none of that. That's <laughs> what I'm going to do when I unwind and, you know, and just chill out or whatever. Um, I feel like it was very noble of him to give up the roles to people of color. But at the same time, I will say that I was conflicted because I kind of felt like, man, he nails Rollo and he nails Cleveland, and he does a couple other ones, and it's kind of like what he's doing, the energy behind it is commendable. That's dope. But do I think someone else could do what he does? I think it, it would be similar to this. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Fela Kuti, but uh, Fela Kuti, he's a, he's a, he's a, he had, he did this music called Afro, uh, uh, Afro Funk, Afrobeat. Afrobeat. And so what Afrobeat was, 
was like, this is how I could describe it. Hmm. Imagine James Brown music played with more jazz instruments, but Africans are freaking it. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's like a, a funky, it's like a funky African remix of like James Brown soul music or whatever. Well, uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, his drummer, Tony Allen. And I was talking to Tony Allen one night and he told me, you know, when I when I stopped playing with Fela, it took six drummers to, uh, he, no, I think, no, he said he it took three drummers to replace him. Like it, three drummers playing at the same time. Tony Allen was just an incredible drummer. He could do what it took three drummers to do when he left. Well, with the actor that voiced Cleveland and Rollo, I kind of feel like they could pull it off, but they won't be able to get one person to pull off all that comedy. Like I, I think, but uh, I, I was sad to hear that he, like I said, it was noble that he gave it up, but I was sad, like, man, nobody could pull it off, you know, the way that he pulled it off. Look, I think it's great that you comment on it. I mean, because when all, and Jeremy, I want to hear your opinion because to me, acting is acting. And obviously there's gray and all of this stuff. It's not black and white, but he created the character and it was his, and he had an amazing run with it. But, and, and listen, but as a black man, it's nice to hear you say your opinion because I think that's what needs to be said. You know what I mean? And it seems like you, Love the character, but you also thought it was noble. Yeah, I thought I definitely thought it was noble, but there was a piece of me that was like, man, I don't know who you could pull it. see. There's so there's a piece of you that wanted him to stay. Okay. Yeah. So what yeah. about what about you, Jeremy? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I actually, I actually feel like I'm. Uh, I understand the nuances to you know like this, the whole idea behind acting and, you know, the black and diversity in Hollywood and all that stuff. Um, when it came to, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement that was, you know, I would say, let's just say that it reached an apex in June or whatever. Um, a lot of misinformation was tossed around. You know what I mean? As far as like people wanting to do it's just like with any idea where it starts off uh, very, you know, artsy and it's like a, you know, a bottom grassroots movement. And then when it hits mainstream, now it's like people lose sight of what 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 started in the first place. You know what I mean? And then you had all these big companies, you know, they just like, yo, I just want to get in on the conversation. So it's almost starting to see more like a competition, like who could out give back to the black community <laughs> and it was giving stuff back that black people never wanted anyway it's like you pass a collection of plate around the church and then okay first you got money okay cool now you got like a pacifier in here and a, I mean <laughs> it's like oh who's pacifier don't donate the pacifier like get us back to your baby and I think mm -hmm. that's where white people are when it comes to things like the Cleveland show uh, I, I just felt like it had nothing to do with the the movement and the issues that's going on in Hollywood and you know amongst race police brutality rioting all that stuff <laughs> poverty like literally that's entertainment and that's the thing that's the problem with uh you know art 
and life uh, mixing. And even what we do on stage, people don't know what to take seriously <laughs> and what to just let be, you know, people's brains, uh, women don't understand context. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's I just, just whatever. I love hearing this because <laughs> this is what I think the problem is in society right now. I cannot speak on black topics. And I will not right. speak on black topics. Right. But what I will do <laughs> is speak to Jeremy and I'll speak to Greg and I'll speak to Vaughn, who opens for me a lot, a black man. <laughs> and I'll speak to Derek, a, a friend of mine who's a comic, who's also black. And I will get what they tell me and then I will digest that and then make decisions. I don't make decisions from my white brain about black people in my white vacuum. And I think that that happens too much. You have to take the cues yes. from the community, you know? Right. And so that, I love hearing you guys talk about it and you should talk about all of this stuff, but because I think it just gets lost in this like machine, fucking washing machine, the woke and all, I mean, come on, man. Come on, man. Like, well, I, I got an idea. I got an idea. Uh, I've been known to take a small uh, percentage of uh, a uh, fiduciary capacity for some uh, managerial actions and whatnot. And I think that you deserve to be on a, uh, a board of directors or something like that. And I think <laughs> I think that the way you're thinking is probably the way that uh, a lot of people make a lot of money by I think called diversity, you know what I'm saying? But you get it though, you get it. Well, he, yeah, clearly, but diversity, tell me when I'm wrong. Like, do, I always say, you tell me when I'm wrong. By the way, Jeremy, this is the kind of conversations I love to have. So thank you, Greg, because I was like, yo, I don't wanna ask like, I don't wanna answer questions about Scream again. You know, like I love it, but you asked me a lot of good, great questions that people don't ask me. So thank you. But like, I always think the comedy club is the most welcoming, diverse place, even though it's hard to be a comedian. When you walk, and I'll just, you know, I love all the clubs in LA, but you know, when I just use the Laugh Factory, the Laugh Factory at the lobby, to me, you can sit in there and be with Iranian comedians, Muslim comedians, Catholic comedians, black, lesbian, uh, Puerto Rican. I mean, everybody goes in that lobby and everybody's like, what's up? That, How's the crowd? Boom. And it's amazing. And I don't think twice about it until all of this stuff started happening, which it's always been happening, but since it's been so loudly, yeah, that I'm like, damn, like, I didn't realize how good we had it because I don't really look at Jeremy as, you know, I try not, I don't look at race politics or gender politics. I look at Jeremy as like, oh, that's, that's a cool dude. He's funny, man. Yo, that's a dude, he funny, meets me at Swingers, gives me some jokes, you know, he'll come on, <laughs> have me come on a show. You know what I mean? And, and I believe that how, how he looks at a, a, a lesbian white comedian. You know, I think he just looks at the, the comedian, right? But, yeah. And so comedy is, is real good like that, but it also blind, it, you know, it made me realize how I didn't look at certain stuff, you know, cause it is a bubble. So I, what I wanna, when we are talking about, um, diversity, it has to be 
from the get-go. This is what people don't understand. And you got to look at Tyler. And you got to look at Byron. You got to look at Black-owned from the get-go and Black stories. That's why Blackish works so well. Because mm. it's Black-created, Black POV, Black stars from there. So it has to be. Whatever, whatever diversification happens when any different you know, uh, sect of people, black, you know, gender or whatever it be, has to start from the storytelling and the ability to execute that in, in the hiring and the money and all of that stuff. And do I think it's there? Obviously, I can't comment on it. No. But do I think it's gotten a lot better in the last five years? Definitely more better, but obviously it's not there. I'll say it's dope for yeah, you to I mean, even like to even recognize that because that so put it this way you're you're an accomplished writer accomplished actor accomplished comedian you could easily choose to not see any of that you know what i'm saying <laughs> like that could it, your life would probably be easier if you could just choose to not see that but for you to for your vision to be as broad enough to say like, okay, I get that. I can understand that. I see how someone could, that, that's a lot, man. It, it means a lot to me as a black guy, just there's so many people, man, that they won't acknowledge any of it. And then I think what makes people kind of angry is they feel like, man, here it is that someone, all we want is it just to be acknowledged. You know what I'm saying? And then we can figure it out. But don't act as though like we're all crazy and, and, and we're saying there's this boogeyman in the closet and then we've all, we all can open the closet and look at the boogeyman, but then there's certain people that see the boogeyman, they're like, oh man, you know. Well, there, there is this thing in Hollywood uh, when the word diversity comes up, you know, it's um, put alongside, you know, equality. Quality is the word. Uh, people use, uh, you know, and then it, when diversity comes, um, it's it's just weird the process people's minds go to in order to make diversity happen. I tend to call it white diversity because there's still like <laughs> it's what culture, you know what I mean? Like white diversity is what the Power Rangers was. That's like the common example that most people understand from older and younger, where they go, okay, wait, okay, it's too much white. Hmm. So they want it diverse. Okay, so we have one black guy, an Asian person, one, you know what I mean? And then, it, you know, but then they'd be like, and then the diversity is the white guy and then the white girl nuzzle the love interest. Or they'd be like, oh, let's mix it up. We'll have the white girl date the black guy. And that's the diversity, you know what I'm saying? But what it is, is in uh, this, the thing is, is multiple conversations happen at the same time. I really feel like, um, you know, black Hollywood trying to, you know, get its establishment and, and uh, you know, get paid higher rates is not the same as police brutality. You know what I mean? But these conversations get mixed, you know? Oh, God. Uh, they get mixed so often, you know? Um, both important causes, but totally separate causes as well. Um, you know, the, the common denominator is Black, but it's when it comes to these words, equality and diversity, it's the foundation, like what's actually happening, you know what I mean? Because if it's just like um, mixing the people around, well, it's gonna cause the same problem. I'll give you an example 
a small example on my level. Well, not even my level, but I'll just say a few years ago, I remember um, this was back when Tommy was running the comedy store. Uh, it was Martin Luther King Day, which tends to be like right next to my birthday every year. Um, so he goes, okay, so since it's Martin Luther King Day um, for the uh, friends and family, he said every like, every like fifth comic, make sure it's a black comic, white diversity. Do you, he don't even realize there was less black people on the lineup because he tried to play this stupid game. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm. It's like, mm. you know, it's not real. It's not, it's not genuine. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't want to go too deep with it, but it's more about the type of equality, the type of diversity that needs to happen needs to be, okay, give these people the space to create and the budget to build because they when they do it these people profit off of it and you know they say go make more but you know this the sect of people who are fighting for these equality equality <laughs> you know what i'm saying you know they don't get to see it as much so and that that's a totally separate conversation from police brutality god <laughs> yeah obviously hollywood is is just that's the, that's the, you know, that's like a the nice thing that has to be fixed. I mean, police brutality. We're talking about air. We're talking about life and death. That yeah. is the first and foremost. And that, yeah, that's cannot be mixed in at all. You know, um, but like people really don't, really, really don't even understand stuff. And it needs to be, and it is being talked about a lot, but it needs to be felt. You know, like it just needs to be felt in the sense of like my friend Derek, man, he's older than me, you know, and he's a great comic and he, he's a great golfer. And he came up doing, I get amazing stories from him. He came up doing one-nighters and just his drive from Utah to Indiana doing three shows, the amount of times he's been pulled over. And he tells me his procedures, which, which he has to do. And I'll be like, but for what? And he's like, cause I'm driving a Mercedes. I'm like, but for what? He's like, <laughs> Because I'm being profiled. I'm like, but for what? Like, you got a car, you're a comedian? He's like, because I'm black. And I'm like, and obviously, I know of this, and you hear this all the time. Like, I do, because, like, I remember, uh, I'm not going to name names, but a very successful actor I worked with told me at a very young age, and you know him, and he said when he got a nice car, he got his first Lexus. And he was pulled over in Sherman Oaks. A black guy driving a Lexus in Sherman Oaks in the, in, in the late 80s. You know, oh, Jesus, who hit the lottery? You know, I mean, like, give me a fucking break, right? So he, he's telling me this, and I've been hearing this obviously forever. But to hear just the checkpoints that Derek tells me to go through, he goes through, and then the, the talk with your kids, I don't think people realize that that every black mother has to have with her kid. You know, 
you, you need black people in your life. All races have to understand this, to un understand the things that are done in the community to just keep everything cool. And as a person, yeah, me, I don't even, I don't, I never had to go through that. And you have to hear this over and over again. You have to hear these examples and then people will really get it. And I mean, I thought I got it. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll tell you something interesting. What I thought, one of the reasons why we did like an elongated pause <laughs> uh, pre-show conversation was because uh, I was really excited to have you on the show. You know, I'm super, super fan. E even though I didn't know all of your works, the works that I saw, they, they moved Bro, me. Bro, come on. You didn't even know I wrote it. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> but but I'm going to tell you the, the, the funny thing, though. I got something more out of this interview than just uh, being a fan of your works. Uh, I have a lot of respect for you because you don't have to care about that part. You know what I'm saying? Like, you really don't. Like, you, you, you could really not care about it. And your life really wouldn't be different any you know, in, in any which way, but um, for you to even pose the question to me, you know, how did I feel about the actor that does Cleveland and Rollo and, and all that? And like I said, I'm either watching the boondocks seven days a week. I'm watching an episode of the boondocks or I'm watching the Cleveland show. It's like either or. So I'm very familiar um, with the actor that you're talking about. And there was a part of me when he said that he was going to give up those roles. I was sad. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I mean, honestly, I was, I, I, you know, I, I, if you know me, I like food, I like dogs <laughs> and I grind. And then I got to have, <laughs> have the comedy that I like. So, so, so I like those, like I'm, I'm, I'm basic when it comes to those terms, but when I, I, I don't know if I saw it on TV or if I had saw it on YouTube or whatnot, but I heard him say, you know, yeah, we're going to give the, if the, if the characters come back, I think they should be giving, given to people that are of the same race or whatever, or whatever. And then I just remember saying to myself, like, man, but could they do Cleveland is good? Could they do Rollo is good? Was, do I feel like uh, Cleveland as a character, do I feel like, uh, the character was making fun of black people. No, I don't feel like Cleveland was making fun of black people. I think Cleveland was just a funny dude. Like he, you know, regardless, you could, you could have made Cleveland whatever race. He was a nerd, you know what I'm saying? For the most part. And then Rollo, he just happened to be Cleveland's stepson that was just this kind of like this cute baby that kind of talked slick. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I say all that to say, man, I appreciate you for... Uh, understanding that you have had a privileged life regardless of what type of life it was but it was privileged in a way where there was things that you didn't have to deal with that other people do have to deal with well i appreciate that man and i will say you know growing up you know i was lucky enough to be exposed to different races you know colors and creeds and religions and such um but i do think we have to talk about it I think it has to be talked about. I think because, you know, my older brother who's in his sixties was like, I'm like, has it ever been like this? And he's like, nah, dude, he's like, this is, 
even crazier than the 60s. I mean, he was around as a kid in the 60s. You're like, man, dude, it's like we're on the brink of some shit. And he, it's just we got to coexist. And 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 people, we it's 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 just fucking terrible, you know. We gotta stop separating ourselves, and we got to just start at the human level. Everybody has just got to be, yo, you're red, you bleed red, I bleed red, and let's go from there. And it's just it's just just so much hate and anger in the world, and. I will say this though, and you tell me this, because you're a serious head. Do I do feel that young hip hop today, even though people give it a lot of shit for certain reasons, mumble rap and all this stuff, but you know, as we say, <laughs> I fucks with it, because if it's got a good beat, you know, I'm not in my head. But I do feel that the younger generation of rappers and that community is more open. And I do feel they look at less things racially and politically and genderly, and they're more open. Am I crazy to say that? And I think there's a good thing happening there. I'll let you go first, Jeremy, and then I... <laughs> well, it's, it's I, I mean, just like... like Tyler, the creator, Tyler, the creator, Tyler, the creator fucks with everybody. You know, I get a vibe, like he's yeah. like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, um, I, like I, I think there's nothing new under the sun. So it's like there are things that are improving, but then, you know, I think it's really more on the fundamental level of, you know, what's actually going on. Because you're always going to get the people who are accepted, you know, the exceptions, and then you have the people who are, you know, the voices aren't heard as much. Um, I say it's, it's, I would say it is better, like, you know, in the seesaw or whatever of life. But there's just there's still some things that uh, you know need to be uncovered. Like even the the people who are making tons of money off of the music, you know they you know because that's the thing is like if you're making money, you you're getting paid to shut up. So it's like if you start talking, you gotta get rid of you. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it's easy to point to somebody who's making money and be like, oh yeah, he he's happy, right? Like Lil Wayne <laughs> next to the president. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, of course. Oh yeah, he's Yo, he come on, man. Please <laughs> let me keep Lil Wayne. Am I allowed to keep Weezy? Please we let me keep, keep Weezy. We, we have Lil Wayne. You can keep him to the Please. You can keep Lil can Wayne to the last dread falls off his head. After that, you gotta throw him away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, 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 dude. I don't want to say this because I want no beef, but I've been hearing this, man. I've been hearing this. I really, really love Weezy, but. I've been hearing but it's, it's like, it, there's no there's nothing I don't even view people as right and wrong it's more about getting closer back to kind of what you were saying this is getting closer to the truth getting close to the truth is having these these tough conversations and understanding like reinforcing the complexity of what's actually going on so people can get it at a younger level so when they're presented with the options they know what the opportunity cost is what you're giving up, what you're buying into, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know. Like, look, um, and then I'll let you speak, Greg. This is like what I want to say, like in the comedy community, like, uh, you know, I love chocolate sundaes. I perform at it, but it shouldn't have to be. It should just be every night enough people of color get on stage. I love 
you know, Korean night. But they shouldn't have to have it. It should be mixed enough, you know. I love the rainbow show, but there should be enough space for the LGBTQ community. You know what I mean? So it's good that we have these things and it's the start, but in a perfect world, I think it would just be comedy night and everybody would get a shot, but maybe I'm too altruistic. <laughs> nah, that's, nah, that's dope. I, I, I would say um, on the youth, on, on the youth in hip hop music, the one thing that I would speak against, and and I and I think it it's it's uh, related directly to the money, is that they really don't speak up for the causes, man. They're they're like like they don't like I, I would have expected, like okay, uh, not the baby. What's I guess little baby? There's a little, little baby. baby. Okay, yeah, yeah, little baby. He did a song. About uh, no, don't get us, don't get us to catch any lead right now. <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> but but no, he he did a song uh, like after uh I guess after what happened to um G uh, George Floyd, he he did a song uh that was like a social social issue or whatever. But that, it was like just one guy out of like all these young rappers with making all this money, all these Instagram followers, that all this influence. And none of them said a word. And then I kind of, you know, I thought, I'm just like, well, man, if all these guys have 360 deals, they really don't have money. They've been loaned money that they have to work to, to you know, to pay the loan back or whatever. If the record label guy is like, nah, you you can't, you don't, you need to, this isn't your battle. This isn't your fight. You know, you, you need to be on hush. They're going to be on hush. You know what I'm saying? Well, now, let me, yes, that, that's, that is totally different than what I'm saying. But on that note, I will say I would think that they would speak on it and be encouraged to speak on it because George Floyd now is a symbol. I mean, I just drove down. Yeah, man, I, I was on Melrose as a big mural and Venice is a mural and the Bay. There's a, I mean, there's murals all around this world. So he is now a touchstone, you know. So I would think they would, and I feel like it's so mainstream. So that's crazy if that's true. But uh, what I was saying is that I just feel like, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, it's just not dudes saying hardcore shit in FUBUs anymore. And I love that, 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 that time, but like a dude with pink hair, can be a rapper and be accepted. You know what I mean? Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Lil Yachty with his braids talking about broccoli. You know, I, <laughs> I, I'm saying, you know, people of yeah, all yeah. different types are doing it. And I do feel that brings a lot of people eyeballs to it. Mm -hmm, so the mm -hmm. eyeballs are there. Now you, what you're saying, you gotta put some messages in it. But I do believe that my eyeballs are there. No, they're definitely there. They're definitely there. So, Yo, man, this is great. Much nah, better man. than uh, Jeremy I, I, said it was a radio interview. Oh, nah. I, <laughs> I definitely appreciate it. I, I have one more question for you, and we can close on this one. Yeah. Uh, because from your conversation, I can tell that you spent a lot of time uh, night owling, going out to different comedy clubs, just popping up. Either if you're not hopping on stage, 
you're kicking it in the back, looking, saying, damn, this is okay. This is what it is. Where do you see social interaction going in the next two years? Ooh, that's a good question, man. Um, bro, I, I think it's kind of, you know, like Jeremy was saying earlier, you know, he used his term, man. It's kind of a wrap. It depends, though. Like, like you know, I'm not going to put them on blast, but my boy and Jeremy's boy, and I'm not going to say who it was, he was recently in the Florida city and <laughs> they're down in Florida and they're kind of still popping bottles. And I'm like, yo, that ain't the way, man. Amen. But, and I mean, they think it's like six feet, but like, you know, there's still like, thing, you know, bikini tops on and the mat underneath the nose. No, man. So, so I would say that would be the extreme example of people still trying to hold on to like, please let me just, you know, let me get this Patron and you know what I mean? I, but look, I, I think it's going to be very, very, very different. I think handshakes are done. I even think fist bumping is done. Elbow is the new Elbow. fist. I do this with the foot. <laughs> I think I, I do that a lot. I think like, yo, what's up, man? Good to see you. Yeah, you know, I think and, and people will take it a lot less personally. I think there's going to be those hardcore people in those hardcore states that are like bring it in. But then, you know, and then there's people that are like, stay away. So I think, look, it's, it's, it's definitely changed, man. But do I think, do I think it's going to go back to normal? There are people that will just don't want to accept what it is, dude. It's a pivot. Do I think it's going to go all the way the other way? No. But do I think it's going back to normal? No. It's a pivot. And you're going to have these battles, dude. That's what I'm saying. You're going to have these battles. Look at all the fucking shit that's going on for people to just wear this, bro. Like, yo, Karen yeah. is a noun, a verb, an adjective. Don't be Karenistic. <laughs> I mean, like, believe or whatever you believe, right? Like, uh... you know, I don't know what I believe, but I do believe there's some shit that gets in you and can call it, make you sick. Now, is there a lot of fucking fuckery and politician and a lot of bullshit with it? Of course there is. But people are sick and people are dying from a virus. We know this is true. So whatever you so just, yo, be a nice person and just make people feel comfortable. Right. The fact that we can't do that. Just that, bro. Just this two dollar mask that people are tripping that hardcore. Yeah. You, you, you're showing you what we're in for, man. I mean, and, and, and it's beautiful that, that I'm so glad you're seeing these Karens because they, it's true what they are. That is the most privileged. They're, they're, they, think they, they think they're being infringed upon so bad. Like, what happens when somebody smashes your fucking car and comes up and goes, yo, I'm hungry. You know what I mean? Because we because we're fucking locked down for so long, and shit gets mad maxian. You know what I mean? Like I'm not saying it's going there, but this is America, though. This is all the problems we talked about. Is America is selfish, selfish, narcissistic society. That's very true. Dope. Well, anything you want to shout out before we close up, Jamie? Anything you got? Bro, we really went all over. I hope we don't get canceled on this. I need a couple cosigns. <laughs> no, we're not. 
Uh, <laughs> yo, I would just say, man, follow me on Twitter, Jamie Kennedy, Instagram, the Jamie Kennedy. I got a podcast, hate to break it to you. It comes out like once a week. You can see it on Spotify, iTunes, my YouTube channel, Jamie Kennedy. Um, listen, be safe, stay productive, you know, be respectful. If you go out, try to wear this and, uh, you know, just use common sense, just common sense. And, you know, a lot of shit's going on in the world. Try to just be chill with each other. What's up with you, Jeremy? You got anything you got going? Anything you want to shout out? Uh, no, it's funny. I always look at my calendar when you ask me that. No, honestly, I just like to say, uh, what thanks, calendar? thanks, Jamie. For, huh? What calendar? We're all open. I know, right? I got less. I just, it's just, anytime somebody asks me a question like that, I look and I'm like, ain't nothing there. But, uh, <laughs> but, no, <laughs> but no, I just want to say, yo, thank you for uh, being on the show, man. Uh, you know, it means a lot to me. Like, you know, we've been rocking for a little bit now. I mean, uh, I remember we was uh, sitting in Swingers, you know, as he's uh, like talking about the comic community or whatever. And then, uh, you know, it hit me who I was talking to because, you know, this, James Kennedy is a very decorated artist, man. I mean, he's worked with everybody. I mean, you, you, you touched the top of Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, just giving you your roses while you're around, bro. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, yo, how much do we miss those late nights at Swingers being able to get some bomb-ass grilled chicken and guacamole and chips? Like, <laughs> what a privilege, right? Man, we didn't know how good we had it straight up. Well, <laughs> I will say that they were closed, but we everybody rallied together. Now they're back open. So yeah, they back open. I saw that. Yeah, it was like a little victory. So hopefully we'll be able to go there again, man. 